We come now to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. We're gonna complete this intensely theological chapter of this epistle looking today at verses 18 to 21. And I wanna begin by reading these verses, Romans chapter five, starting in verse 18. And notice the the language of summation here. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have reached the the climax of the presentation that began in verse 12 and crescendos with the really one of the most profound and provocative statements in all of scripture concerning the grace of God that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, extolling the supremely sufficient, superabounding grace of God and being so provocative that chapters six through eight are nearly devoted to addressing a misappropriation of that truth. In fact, chapter six starts with the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And Paul answers, may it never be. And yet that's chapter six. We're here at the end of chapter five. And so we want to rejoice in the super abounding grace of God that has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after an extended digression, Paul finally completes the comparison interrupted back in verse 12, declaring now the the similarity or resemblance between Adam and Christ as representative heads of their respective posterities, their offspring, those who belong to them, where Adam functions as the head of the entire human race that fell in corporate solidarity with him, plunging the whole human race into sin, condemnation, and death. And where Christ functions as the head of a new and redeemed humanity that is raised to newness of life in corporate solidarity with him, securing for them righteousness, justification, and life. And the eternal destiny of every person who has ever lived hinges on this distinction, whether you're in Adam or whether you're in Christ. You came into this world in Adam, you must leave this world in Christ. Otherwise, you will enter into everlasting judgment because you will die in your sins. And if you're in Christ, the point is this. The whole section that your justification and the assurance of your future participation 
in the revelation of the glory of God is just as certain as the empirically evident reality of condemnation and the coming judgment. If you can look at the world and see the undeniable marks of Adam's headship, of his transgression, then you can be assured of the undeniable reversal accomplished in Christ. The comparison between Adam and Christ is in place to bolster our assurance in the certainty of our hope. And so Paul is going to bring to summation the results of this representative headship, exalting Christ as the second and better Adam through whom a glorious reversal has been realized. And then he's going to highlight the role and function of the law, setting the stage for a glorious magnification of the grace of God. So note first, the results of representative headship. The results of representative headship. And under that heading, because there are two, one in verse 18, one in verse 19, under that heading, note the declaration of the results. The declaration of the results. Look at verse 18. It says, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So this completes the comparison interrupted in verse 12, expressed in the language as through, even so. As through one transgression, even so through one act of righteousness. But the accent isn't on the comparison between these two acts, the one transgression versus the one act of righteousness. Instead, it's on the comparison between two men, whereby as through one transgression, would be better rendered as through one man's transgression or as through the transgression of the one and whereby as through one act of righteousness would be better rendered as through one man's righteousness or as through the righteousness of one. The emphasis here is not on the actions per se, but on the, the men through whom these actions were realized. And in the same way that the transgression of the one, namely Adam, resulted in condemnation to all men, so also the righteousness of the one, namely Christ, resulted in justification of life to all men. Accentuating the similarity of the results of these two representative heads. But notice the asymmetry. Because in both cases, the result is said to have a universal impact. 
It says there, to all men. And yet, while Adam's transgression universally impacts the entire human race, the same cannot be said of Christ's righteousness. The result of his righteousness is expressly limited to who? To those who receive it. We saw that in verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, here it is, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so the all men to whom Christ's righteousness has benefit are exclusively those who receive this grace. In fact, the idea isn't even that the result here secured by Christ is something that's made available to all men, as though Paul is merely speaking of a potentiality, that this is potential for all men. No, the contrast is between two actual results. What actually resulted from Adam's transgression and what actually results from Christ's righteousness. And so the result secured by Christ is universal, but only universal for those who can legitimately claim him as their representative head. As Paul says elsewhere, For as in Adam all die, and universally all do, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You must be in Christ to receive this life, to be made alive. And here, Paul uses the language of life to depict the results secured by Christ. He calls it the justification of life, where justification refers to that legal declaration in the court of heaven where God's gavel comes down and declares us righteous, and where life refers to eternal life. So the justification of life is the justification that leads to eternal life that results in eternal life, a quality of life that not only guarantees our participation in the life to come, in the the resurrection unto life, but also a quality of life that's operative in the present, whereby we now walk in newness of life. So two representative heads Two contributions, two results. The two heads, Adam and Christ. The two contributions, transgression and righteousness. And the two results, condemnation that leads to death and justification that leads to life. And to maintain the the comparison here, Most translations render Christ's contribution to be an act of righteousness. Where it says, even so, through one act of righteousness. Isolating a a single act 
which underscores what? His work on the cross. And though the cross is most certainly the the climax of his obedience, the, the high point, as it were, of his obedience, it definitely can't be divorced from all that led up to that. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient and sinless life. If he hadn't, his work on the cross would have accomplished nothing. And so he didn't just atone for our sin, he also secured for us a perfect record of righteousness under the law. And that means this, that bound up in his contribution is what's called the active and passive obedience of Christ. And we need both. His active obedience refers to his fulfillment of the law. He was born under the law, Galatians 4.4. And he fulfilled all righteousness. He was even tested in the wilderness and overcame every single test. He always did that which pleased the Father, Romans 8.29. And he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. That's his active obedience, where he, by his life, secures for us a perfect record of righteousness under the law. His passive obedience refers to his work on the cross, where he offered himself as the atonement for sin, where he bore our sins in his own body, where he received the penalty that was due us, where he suffered under and satisfied the wrath of God and where he became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. That's his passive obedience where he makes atonement for our sin. And again, both are critical to illustrate this. If all we received was the forgiveness of sin, we would simply be brought back to the condition that Adam was pre-fall. And at that time, he, he didn't have a perfect record of righteousness. He was under a testing time, and he failed and plunged the whole human race into sin. And so to be forgiven your sin merely puts your account, as it were, your, your bank account, as it were, back to zero, but you need a perfect record of righteousness an irrevocable, eternal record of righteousness. And so we need both the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. We need both his perfect record of righteousness and atonement. We need our sins to be forgiven, but we also need to be credited with a a record of righteousness that is irrevocable and eternal. And Christ accomplishes both. And we receive both in him. And that not only makes him the second and better Adam, 
It makes him the wonderful Savior. He has accomplished everything on our behalf. That's the declaration of the results. Now, two, under the main heading, note the explanation of the results. The explanation of the results. Verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the issue here is with the the word rendered made. In Adam, we're made sinners. And in Christ, we're made righteous. But to be made righteous implies that we're made morally or ethically righteous. That we're made practically righteous. And the fact of the matter is that we aren't morally or ethically made righteous until when? Until glorification. When we're finally made perfect. And so what does Paul have in mind here? Is he looking to our future final glorification or is he describing what's true now? And that question is answered by recognizing the relationship between this verse and verse 18. You'll notice that verse 19 begins with the word for. So it's explaining what we just saw in verse 18. And verse 18 is all about imputation. Being imputed with Adam's condemnation and being imputed with Christ's righteousness. The imputation of Adam's condemnation to all in him and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to all in him. And so the, the, the verb here rendered made must have a legal or forensic meaning, a meaning that's consistent with the language of imputation, and it does. It can also be rendered appointed. In fact, if you have an LSB, you'll see that's how they rendered it. The LSB has it like this, for for as through one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. And so Paul isn't looking here to future final glorification. Instead, he's reinforcing the reality of imputation. Which is, which is even obvious by the comparison. And the comparison is between being made sinners and being made righteous. And we're made sinners how? We're made sinners by being imputed with Adam's sin nature, with his condemnation and guilt. And so that we've been made righteous refers to us being counted righteous by means of imputation. And to help sort of illustrate this a little bit, this is really a perfect opportunity to define righteousness with respect to its three stages. We can say there are three stages 
as it relates to righteousness. And each begins with the letter P. There's positional righteousness. There's progressive righteousness. And there's perfected righteousness. Positional, progressive, and perfected. Let's break these down. What's positional righteousness? This is important to understand this. Positional righteousness is what we receive when we're first justified. It's our standing before God. We have a right standing before God in being positionally righteous, in being imputed with the righteousness of Christ. But we'd have to admit that though we've been counted righteous, we aren't yet practically righteous. There's a gap between what we are positionally and what we are practically. But as we grow in Christ, we become ever more practically what we already are positionally. And that's what we call progressive righteousness. That as we're conformed into Christ's image, our lives increase in practical righteousness. That having been raised to newness of life, we become progressively more righteous and the gap between our positional righteousness and our practical righteousness actually begins to close. And that process of growing in practical righteousness ends when we're finally made what? Perfect. Perfected righteousness. And perfected righteousness is realized when? At glorification. When we're finally delivered from the presence of sin. In justification, we're delivered from the penalty and power of sin. In glorification, we're finally delivered from the presence of sin. And that's why at that time, we go from being progressively righteous and having positional righteousness to being perfected in righteousness. So we are living right now between positional and perfected righteousness. We're we're living now in this time when we're being progressively molded into the image of Christ, where our time in the word and our time in prayer and our time in corporate worship and fellowship is all working to mold us ever more into the image of Christ as we behold the, the glory of Christ and are transformed into the image of that glory from one level of glory to the next. We are in that time where we are growing in likeness to Christ, growing in grace, and therefore growing in practical righteousness. And even Paul's attitude in this in this period between these two realities, positional and perfected righteousness, it was his desire to press on toward the upward call of God in Christ, to to pursue the perfection that would be his at glorification, to to strive after that now by the power of the Spirit, allowing the the, the reign of grace to, to, to work in his life. And so positional righteousness, progressive righteousness, and perfected righteousness. Or you could call it this, 
positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, and perfected sanctification, where each stage depicts being set apart from sin and set apart unto God, set apart positionally in justification, set apart progressively in sanctification, and set apart perfectly or totally in glorification. So that's the results of the representative headship, both the declaration and the explanation of it. That though we were condemned in Adam, we've received justification of life in Christ, not only securing for us a place in the life to come, but also securing for us the transformation of our lives in the present. Now, second, note the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. And there are two purposes. So under that heading, note, to magnify the riches of God's grace. To magnify the riches of God's grace. Look at verse 20. It says the law came in so that transgression, rather the transgression, would increase. So what does Paul mean by the law? He means the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law, the law that was given to Israel at Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20, that can be summarized in the Ten Commandments, or by citing the two greatest commandments, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. So Paul's talking about the law of Moses. And he says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. So why does Paul bring up the law here? Why now? Well, you'll recall that he mentioned it back in verses 13 and 14. And even identified the era between Adam and Moses when there wasn't an officially codified law. So the question that would have lingered on the mind of the Jew is what impact the law would have had on the crisis brought about by Adam's sin. What impact did the law have? How did the law affect Adam's transgression in the world. And intuitively, you might think the law would have helped the situation. That it would have restrained sin. And yet, it's just the opposite. It made things worse. And that's alluded to by the word that's used where it says the law, here it is, came in. It's the same word used in verse 12 where it, says, where it says sin entered into the world. The only difference 
is that there's a, a prefix on the front of it that means alongside of. So the law came in alongside of sin. And it came in to intensify the crisis. And that means that the law came in to aid and abet sin. Which is exactly what it says. Again, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. A word that means to become more and more so as to be in abundance. So how does the law increase transgression? Well, note that it says the transgression. So which transgression is the transgression? It's Adam's transgression. So the transgression that the law seeks to increase is that which is in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. And we know from Romans 4.15 and even 5.13 that where there's no law, there's also no Violation, no transgression. There's certainly sin. Sin exists apart from the law, but sin becomes transgression, something even worse when there's a violation of an officially codified law. So the law increases the transgression by upgrading sin to being the deviation from an established boundary. And therefore, note this, increases the transgression by establishing a situation that resembles life in the garden. Think about that for a moment. When we sin, we sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. See, you might think, well, had I been Adam, I wouldn't have sinned. No. You and I prove over and over again that we're just like Adam. And we have the vantage point of everything that came in through Adam. We have fuller disclosure. We can see the whole picture. And yet even as those who have been raised to newness of life, we still transgress the word of God.
And so the law increases the transgression by increasing the severity of sin. It renders sin utterly sinful. It increases the sinfulness of sin. How else does the law increase transgression? By increasing the sheer number of transgressions. If sin becomes transgression under the law and all of Adam's offspring are appointed sinners, then the number of transgressions is multiplied. And so the law not only increases the transgression by increasing the severity of sin, but it also multiplies the sheer number of transgressions. And so again, this is not what you would expect. You'd expect a law to come in to mitigate the crisis, to help, to assist, to improve the situation. Instead, it aggravates it. It only makes things worse. But next part of verse 20, and here it is. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That word there, abounded, means to be in great excess. It's to superabound. And so, where sin became more and more, so as to be in great abundance, grace superabounded all the more in inexhaustible surplus. And that means that the ultimate purpose in adding the law wasn't to increase the transgression, but was rather to magnify the supremely sufficient, superabounding grace of God. And here's what you have to realize. God has orchestrated everything to put in place the right conditions that would facilitate the maximum display of his superabounding grace. His grace is so glorious, so superabounding, so inexhaustible, so worthy of praise, so infinitely powerful that he has designed everything to ensure that the full panoply of his grace would shine in the fullness of its beauty and radiance. This is amazing grace. There's no sin too sinful. There's no number of sins that's too many. You couldn't outsin the grace of God. It, it abounds. It superabounds all the more. And God delights to reach down to the lowest part of the barrel to secure for himself the worst of sinners to then raise them up, clothe them in his righteousness and hold them up as a trophy of his grace. Oh, what superabounding riches of grace. 
So don't miss this. God has put in place the precise circumstances to give his grace the greatest and most maximum display. Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so God says, to us as sinners, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And the prophet Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then God vindicates Isaiah's proclamation of this grace when he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is abundant in his grace. He pardons abundantly, super abundantly. And so Jesus cries out and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And elsewhere, he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the invitation that comes from heaven, from God the Father and God the Son, by God the Spirit, to call sinners to be reconciled to him, to receive this bountiful grace. So what's the purpose of the law? One, to magnify the riches of God's grace. Now, two, to magnify the reign of God's grace. To magnify the reign of God's grace. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does it mean that sin reigned in death? Well, the word in depicts sphere. So sin rules and reigns in the sphere of death. And sphere depicts a kingdom or domain. So sin rules and reigns in the domain of death. And those who belong to that domain or kingdom are under the, the dominion of sin, the power and control of sin, and are slaves to sin. 
and are subject to the second death, eternal death, and everlasting judgment. But on account of God's superabounding grace, a new reign has dawned, the rule and reign of his grace. And his grace has conquered the rule and reign of sin, delivering us from the domain of death and transferring us to the domain of eternal life. And his grace rules and reigns through righteousness, which is the gift of righteousness, the the bestowal of the righteousness that justifies. And it rules and reigns unto eternal life through none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lives never to die again. For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so as those who are in Christ, we no longer live under the reign of death and the power of sin. We now reign, live under the reign of grace, this this glorious grace, this irrevocable grace, this eternal grace, this forgiving grace, this grace that is operative in our lives to to cause us to to grow in likeness to Christ. This is the the dominion that we we live under, and we live under it now, and will ultimately be ushered into eternal life, life after death, where we will dwell with God and with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. All of that is on the horizon, and all of that is because we are under this glorious reign of grace. Counted righteous, set free from sin, sins forgiven. I mean, it's no wonder that we're being transformed. You you can't help but be transformed. You, you, You couldn't resist this transformation. This grace is so operative in your life that it will overcome all of your resistance and will continue to move you forward all the way into glorification when you're made perfect conform totally into the image of Christ. We belong to a kingdom that guarantees the operation of God's grace in our lives, transforming us into the glory of the Lord from one level of glory to the next. And so that's the purpose of the law in the context of salvation. It's to magnify the riches of God's grace and to magnify the reign of God's grace. Now, I'm gonna say this. If after looking at Romans chapter five, you haven't been bolstered in your assurance of the certainty of the hope that we have in Christ, then I don't know what could bolster your assurance. We have peace with God, an eternal and irrevocable standing in grace 
the certain expectation that we're going to participate in the revelation of the glory of God, the promise that even our tribulations are actually working to strengthen our hope, the spirit given to us as a pledge, a down payment on the guarantee of our inheritance, both the evidential and experiential love of God, God's love toward us expressed in it being poured out in our hearts through the spirit and being evidenced in the demonstration of his love at the cross of Christ, certain deliverance from the wrath to come, the infallible intercessory ministry of our great high priest, reconciliation with God. And all of that on the foundation of the second and better Adam, who is our representative head and has secured for us justifying righteousness, superabounding grace, and everlasting life. This is the supremely sufficient, superabounding grace of God. Amen. And so may you be bolstered in moments of weakness where you're lacking assurance. May you come back to this chapter and revisit these truths and be reminded of this rock-solid salvation that we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are so overwhelmed, so grateful for your mercy and grace in our lives. We marvel at the way you have designed everything to put your glory on display, to put the glory of your grace on display, to put the glory of Christ on display. Father, we don't deserve any of this. We deserve eternal judgment. And yet you have delivered us have reconciled us to yourself, have given us this glorious and certain hope. And so, Father, we give you great praise. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen.